Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. A lot of us may be into board games, but imagine being a board game creator. We find out what it takes to draw a winning hand in the board game game. And we look into why conservative media in the U.S. are suddenly so interested in talking about Canada. Truckers and Trudeau, to be exact. But first, GoFundMe pulls the plug on the highly successful trucker convoy fundraiser saying it violated its terms of service, with much of the $10 million raised to be reimbursed or redistributed. What drove the company's decision, and is it fair? Sticking with that Ottawa protest, the high-profile GoFundMe fundraising effort that attracted some $10 million to support the trucker convoy to Ottawa, one of the most successful campaigns it has on the go, has been shut down and the release of the remaining money will be reimbursed or redirected. The California-based online fundraising site announced the decision late today, citing, quote, the promotion of violence and harassment. The convoy fundraising page had been under review. Today, GoFundMe said in that statement, following a review of relevant facts and multiple discussions with local law enforcement and city officials, the fundraiser is now in violation of our terms of service and has been removed from the platform. They added organizers provided a clear distribution plan for the initial $1 million that was released earlier this week and confirmed funds would only be used for participants who traveled to Ottawa to participate in a peaceful protest goes on to say, given how the situation has evolved, no further funds will be directly distributed to the Freedom Convoy organizers. We will work with organizers to send all remaining funds to credible and established charities verified by GoFundMe. You can also apply for a refund within two weeks if you happen to have donated. Well, lots to talk about there. Joining me now to look into it is Jeremy Snyder, a bioethicist at Simon Fraser University and co-author of the recent article, Crowdfunding Campaigns and COVID-19 Misinformation. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ben. How surprised were you by that move today from from GoFundMe? Yeah, not too surprised. The campaign had been frozen for a little over a day. And then even before that, uh, they had only allowed a small, well, a million dollars. But um, when you look at the whole total, a small amount to be released. So... If anything, I was surprised it took them so long to get to this point, given that it seemed to be pretty clearly in violation of um, a number of the terms of service that GoFundMe has for these campaigns. Yeah, tell me about that, because there were people raising concerns quite early on about, about certainly as it got more successful, and it was highly successful. What were some of the, the, the alarm blow, sorry, the red flags for you? For me, it was definitely that the um, rhetoric around the campaign was really, really charged. Um, you know, we all saw images from last weekend of swastikas and really hateful language. Definitely, that wasn't seemingly a majority of the folks who were there, but um, it was definitely an element there. Uh, for me, it was things that were really tied to the particular campaign. So the campaigners were affiliated with a lot of pretty extreme right-wing causes and had been caught up in Islamophobic language and that sort of thing. Uh, it was never very clear what the money was going to be used for. Uh, they're talking about gas and lodging, but it's hard to think you really need $10 million for that. And, um, you know, and there are questions about if illegal activities are going to be engaged in as well. I think that, you know, if people want to fundraise to have a peaceful demonstration, that's absolutely okay. But this is pretty quickly morphed into something a little bit more like taking, you know, much of Ottawa hostage, essentially, and, um, you know, blocking traffic in a lot of other country, um, cities as well. 
I'm not sure how much you can speak to this, but for some people, you might look at that and go, wow, how, how can they do that? Uh, but clearly, GoFundMe is a platform that has rules and regulations. And I, I gather they can pull the plug on a campaign if they feel like it's, it's violating their terms. Sure. And this is something they do quite frequently. Um, they have uh, gotten into trouble with campaigns in the past engaging in fraud. And that's why they have a lot of these protections. There was a couple out of Philadelphia a couple of years back I raised about $400,000 to uh, give to a homeless man. As it turns out, they used that money to buy uh, cars for themselves and vacations and that sort of thing. And GoFundMe has a longstanding policy not to allow um, fundraising for any sort of discriminatory activities. They don't allow funding for uh, vaccine misinformation, and they don't allow funding for uh, people, uh, legal defense of people accused of violent crimes or to engage in violence like the January 6th insurrection in the U.S. So this seems well along the lines of the sort of thing it's locked down on before. I would imagine they, they would have had to have carried out it. And I mean, they did mention they had spoken to city officials and local authorities in Ottawa. So I imagine they would have checked into what was being said, what was being said on the ground uh, to determine whether or not this fundraiser was still uh, in, in, you know, still not in violation of their terms. Yeah, that's, that's what they uh, reported on um, and that they've been talking to the campaigners themselves for a number of days as well. But again, this is kind of why I was surprised that it took them so long to get to this point because, you know, the mayor of Ottawa had been asking for this to be present for a number of days or asking for some of the money to be diverted. And I think anyone who was paying any attention to the news could see the sort of um, activities that were likely to be associated with harassment of the press, um, of local population, the honking, um, you know, all of this sort of thing, you know, and getting down to blocking streets and, and making life extremely difficult for folks in Ottawa it was very, very easy to see why this was problematic. I'm speaking with Jeremy Snyder, bioethicist at Simon Fraser University and co-author of a recent article called Crowdfunding Campaigns and COVID-19 Misinformation. We're talking about GoFundMe pulling the plug on uh, the Freedom Convoy um, fundraising effort that had raised uh, over $10 million uh, at this point. Um, they have attempted now, I, I know, I was watching tonight, they have, they have tried to move to another fundraising site. I gather the fundraising will continue. Um but GoFundMe has a special place when it comes to fundraising, does it not? It does. It's definitely the name brand, but um, and, and definitely has the infrastructure to handle this sort of thing better than most. But it is interesting. The other platform that they moved over to, um, you know, really quickly within um, an hour of the point where they shut down the GoFundMe account, had raised well over a hundred thousand dollars and. At this point, the servers for that site are essentially crashing over the amount of traffic that they're getting of people withdrawing their cash from um, GoFundMe and trying to send it to this other site. Um, obviously, they don't have the infrastructure like GoFundMe to actually handle all this traffic, and but um, I imagine they will be building up. And this is a platform that's um, basically built itself as an alternative to GoFundMe for a long time. So for you know, police officers accused of murder, for January 6th insurrectionists, for anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. Um, they all have a home here. And uh, I, I'm concerned, I guess, that you know, it's, it's a pretty small operation at the moment, but it seems like something is going to get much bigger. I mean, you looked into this, you looked into crowdfunding a lot when it came to COVID-19 misinformation. Are, are we seeing a polarization of fundraising as well now? Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, it's the sort of thing you've seen with social media in general. Uh, when Twitter has locked down on um, vaccine misinformation campaigns or 
banned people for threats of violence or for spreading misinformation about uh, the pandemic, you know, they've been able to find other social media platforms, you know, smaller ones, but ones where they can find a home. Uh, similar with YouTube, uh, there are sort of right-wing alternatives to that as well. Um, a lot of people who are involved in the um, uh, convoys have found uh, Zello or this walkie-talkie app as a way to avoid some of these restrictions. So I, I definitely applaud companies like GoFundMe and Twitter and Facebook for you know, doing what they can to try to police what's happening and, and not be involved with promoting misinformation and, and violence and all of that. But it's definitely one of these tricky parts about social media and technology in general is, you know, you can knock a few of these downs, but there are always places, especially if there's money to be made, uh, they're willing to step up and be much more permissive in terms of what people are allowed to say. Jeremy Snyder, thank you so much for your time tonight. Okay, thanks for having me on. Well, the past few years have been a really good time to rediscover your love of board games with so many things closed, so many of us at home, and not a bad time to come up with some new ideas for, for good ideas at least, for new board games. My next guest is not only a board game enthusiast, but for the past 17 years, he's been a board game creator. Jay Cormier joins me now from Vancouver. Thank you so much for taking time out. I hope it wasn't game night, um, but thanks for taking time out to talk to us tonight. It's hilarious because I'm literally pausing the game while I do this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were. I, I was. I was thinking it must be game night. It's Friday night. It's like nine. You know, it's nine thirty in here in here in BC. It must be game night. Uh, right. It's 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 such a great story because I think a lot of us play board games and never go into a lot of thought about how they were created, except maybe some of the really you know the Trivial Pursuit story is is right. quite famous. I'm I'm from Montreal, so it was quite uh, quite a big story there. Um, yes. But tell me about about some of those games that inspired you growing up that kind of got you interested in them. Oh, yeah. Like, my dad would always have game night, and I always loved, I always kind of pushed for it. I'm like, let's have another game night. I just like game night. It's just so interactive, fun, a lot of laughing, whether it's Pictionary, the, you know, the games from back then, or even uh, we had a weird game called Pole Economy, which is this, like, Monopoly ripoff kind of clone thing. And I think it was a Canadian game. Um, right. You rolled dice, moved around board, and bought stocks and stuff like that, and just a bit more advanced than Monopoly. And yeah, just all those kind of games. I played Car Wars and D&D with my friends. Just these really yeah. weird games from back then, yeah. Yeah, I, what, I remember the Game of Life. That was that was my favorite yes, one because it's such an ornate board with the spinning. I don't think there was much to it, ultimately. but <laughs> no. uh, uh, Exactly. So, I mean... When did you decide I'm gonna I'm gonna take you know I'm gonna try this out I'm gonna roll the dice and try and build one of these Yeah, twice actually. So me and my buddy we just like playing games and we're both kind of creative. So we both said uh, let's do it. Let's make our own game. We could make a game. Sure we could. And we tried and then we failed. And we 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 kept trying to figure out how to fix this one game and we couldn't figure it out. And we knew that the game wasn't good. And so, like m many people, when they get involved in a medium that they admire and like and have, you know, a certain quality of standards that they know what is good and what is bad, they stopped doing it. And so did we. We stopped making games because we couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't until, this was back when I lived in Ontario and really close to him, it wasn't until I actually moved out to BC where I am now um, that we decided, like, we've got to stay in touch. We're best friends. How do we, how are we going to stay in touch? And, and he said, well, why don't we just start designing games again? I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do that. That'll be a way for us to stay in touch. And because we're now provinces apart, um, uh, we use technology as a way to keep in touch and kind of keep track of all of our ideas that we're coming up with. And that was the glue. 
Because if you've ever heard of the law of reciprocity, it would be like he would type up a little message of like, here's an idea for a game. The law of reciprocity was like, I felt compelled that I had to respond to this. I had to like, you know, okay, well, let me kind of riff off of that idea. And we'd go back and forth like that until all of a sudden one of us would be like, that's a cool idea. Let's make this game. Yeah, it sounds like how hit hit songs are written, right? That's fantastic. Maybe, so, yeah. so almost two dozen of your games have been produced. I know others have been turned down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What is what is the key? Do you think to a really good game? Well, I mean, the, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think if anyone knew the answer to that, they yeah, would well, be uh, millionaires. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but as far as it, there's niches, is the thing. There's like. Mm-hmm. When when we're talking board games and a lot of people, like the mass audience out there, they think Game of Life, Clue, Monopoly, that kind of stuff. And those are like humongous sellers, humongous sellers that are selling every year, like millions of copies. Um, but that would be amazing to get one of those game kind of games made, but they're all from the past. Like as far as to get a new game made, it's got to be something a bit different. But you either going after the mass market and trying to get into your Walmarts and Targets and maybe it's more of a fun party game, very little rules, that kind of stuff. But more and more of these strategy games are starting to pop up in places like Walmart and Target. They actually have sections now that are for these more advanced games and games like Catan and Ticket to Ride and Carcassonne are these evergreen games that just kind of are always available for sale at these game stores and now at mass market stores. So that that's the ticket is to try to figure out how to design one of those games that still has, you know, even these strategy games have more rules to learn, but they're a little bit more um, accessible uh, than some of the heavier, crunchier ones. I guess you don't just call someone up and say, I have a game. How do you pitch these? Well, I mean, you could do cold calling. That's the worst is like cold emailing a publisher. Like, are you looking for stuff? And some publishers have, you know, a, a submission online where you can email them and, and ask. But the number one best way is to go to board game conventions. There are conventions all over the world. The biggest one is in Germany, in Essen, Germany. It's humongous. I've been a couple times. And then the biggest one in North America is in Indianapolis called Gen Con. And there's one in Columbus, Ohio called uh, Origins. And there's one in Vancouver called Shucks. And that's huge, too. And then publishers are there, and they have booths, and they they bring people that um, are the people you would want to pitch to. And you set up meetings in advance. You email them saying, hey, I'm going to be at Gen Con. Can I pitch you a game? And then they slot you in, and you you have a schedule, and you walk around. And when I go to Gen Con, at least in the past, like it was busy for me. I'd be running from booth to booth because I was back-to-back meetings trying to pitch all my games. I'd come there with six, seven, or eight games trying to pitch all my games to different publishers. I'm speaking with Jay Cormier, board game inventor in Vancouver. Uh, So if if people are interested, what games of yours may they see somewhere where they might recognize that, oh, I just heard that guy last night on the radio? Yeah, uh, my biggest seller is a game called Junkard. It's kind of like a a reverse Jenga, if you will, where there's all these fun, weirdly colored blocks that you're stacking on top of each other, and each person has their own little pile they're trying to make without knocking them over kind of thing. That one's pretty big. Uh, Mind Management is the first game. I actually became a publisher, a board game publisher for the first time last year and published my first game. Yeah, and that was Mind Management. So I had to learn the whole business side of it too. Um, And then I have uh, a new game based on The Goonies. and Right, the movie from the 80s. Yeah, Scooby-Doo, I remember that too, sure. Yeah, so I've got these, they're like escape room in a box games 
where um, you have to um, get out of a, you know, for uh, Scooby-Doo, it's a haunted mansion. You have to try to figure, right. solve the mystery and get out of the haunted mansion. And Goonies, you have to escape with One-Eyed Willie's rich stuff, if you remember that movie. I do. I remember that movie quite well, actually. <laughs> yeah, and Scooby-Doo, those darn kids. I would have gotten away with it, except for, it except for those darn kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is always a question I always, so what is your favorite game? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, like there's there's a, there's a term in the board game world called the cult of the new, and I kind of prescribe to it a little bit in the sense that the next thing that's around the corner that's new and shiny and hot is like I'm interested in that as well, and I'm like, oh, what's that over there? And meanwhile, I've got 300 games sitting here that you know also want to be played. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously trying not to choose one of my own games that I made as a favorite game. Um, I like games like uh, a game called Tikal, which you've probably never heard of. Dominion you may no. never heard of. These are like no. strategy games. I like these strategy games. But as far as party games, uh, there's a new one called Just One that won a, a big German Game of the Year award last year, uh, which was it's a really fun, fun party game. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's really easy and really fun. Perfect. I know you have twins and it's game night. So I'm going to let you get back to, uh, get back to what you're doing. Jay Cormier, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to learn more about creating board games. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Love it. Thank you. I think it's safe to say I watch quite a bit of news. Just comes with the, comes with the job. And I'm always curious about why things get covered. And, you know, I work in news, so I, I, I usually have a pretty good idea. So sometimes you see things like me and think, I wonder why exactly that's happening. You know, we can be forgiven for thinking that U.S. news outlets usually pretty much ignore Canada. I mean, it's true. They, they usually do. Um, that's definitely not the case with the ongoing protests in Ottawa. In fact, they and the federal government's response, particularly the prime minister's, have become kind of a popular topic on Fox News and other conservative media outlets. Here's a listen to Fox News' Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, their two biggest stars, talking trucks and Trudeau. That stands for freedom. Liberty instantly becomes the enemy, especially far-left, failed Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is now resorting to the predictable, baseless smear attack and tactics instead of seriously addressing truckers' concerns. In Nova Scotia, protests against Justin Trudeau's vaccine mandates are now banned by law. Rarely has a nation changed this quickly or more unequivocally for the worse. And last week, thousands of Canadian truckers reached their limit. A convoy of truckers converged on the capital city, Ottawa, to demand peacefully, cheerfully, but persistently an end to Justin Trudeau's tyranny. Yeah, Tucker Carlson at the end there, Sean Hannity before that. I mean, they're the biggest stars Fox News has. And they've been talking a lot about trucks and Trudeau, which is interesting because I don't remember American newscasters very often ever talking about Canadian politics all that often, uh, regardless of what was going on here. So why the sudden interest in the usually ignored news from their northern neighbor? Joining me now to try to explain from Washington is Andrew Lawrence. He's the deputy director for Rapid Response with Media Watchdog Media Matters. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Andrew, this might not be scientific, but uh, this is just anecdotal from my experiences in the U.S., but you don't often see much news about Canada on any major uh, American news network. Mm -hmm. No, no, you definitely don't. It has to be something that uh, uh, they can see that they can use to their advantage. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say that that that, that brings us to where we were going, which was... um, you know, there has been a lot of talk about truckers and Trudeau of late. Uh, I'm just wondering where you're seeing it and what the tone is. 
Well, I'm seeing it, you know, I, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with the uh, media apparatus here in the States, um, but I am seeing it throughout conservative media here. And it is, it's an issue. It's uh, something that they have all kind of glommed onto and are using right now. Um, but, you know, my job is to focus on Fox News, which is the most watched cable news network uh, in America. Um, and it's it's everywhere. Uh, they're they're just obsessed with this story. Um, I would say every hour over the last week, about every hour you're getting a segment on it. And, and what and what are they talking about? I mean, we know, of course, we're here, so we obviously know a lot about about the protests that are going on, what's happened in Ottawa. But what really are that? What's being focused on? Well, I think that you know, first of all, you have to understand um, the conservative media in America the way that it's been fighting back on vaccines, vaccine mandates, uh, things of that nature. So, you know, this this trucker convoy, I think it's being called the Freedom Convoy, uh, is being used in a way that conservative media has been using examples of anti-vaxxers and anti-vax rallies uh, since the vaccines came out, you know? And I think that, you know, I saw a stat that in Canada, about 85% of the truckers, in your country are actually vaccinated. So this doesn't really represent, you know, the overall feeling uh, of this group of people. But I think that, you know, in the same way in America, an overwhelming uh, majority of people are actually vaccinated, but they need examples like this to make it seem like the overall public isn't interested in vaccinations. They don't want it, that it's government overreach, that it's authoritarian, things of that nature. So this is being used as another example of that right now. And I think the fact that, you know, you do have uh, it's, it's the truckers. So that sort of fits into that that white working class demographic that they focus on so much and that they're trying to get riled up and that that are their viewers. Um, and and it's just very visible as well. So I think that all those things combined, it, it, it has turned into this thing here in the States where we're just being overwhelmed with coverage. Which is surprising because one would think that coverage of Canada would never be good for business in the in the U.S. But but what what has been the tone overall? How are they treating? How are they treating this? Well, I would say that um, the overall tone it's one hundred percent positive as far as conservative media goes. I would say that the more mainstream press really isn't talking about it all that much. They're pretty much uh, ignoring it. But um, I would say also that the the conservative media here in America is very quick to jump to the defense of the trucker convoy. Um, You know, there's been some reports of extremist elements uh, within the convoy. Um, There's been uh, uh, imagery, extremist imagery, stuff like that. As soon as that stuff pops up in the news and other people start talking about it, uh, conservative media just jumps on, jumps on that to defend the truckers, say that it's really not part of it, that, that the mainstream outlets are just sort of using that to, uh, negate, you know, any momentum that the, that the convoy has, that type of thing. So it's, I, they're, they're praising them and then they're also uh, defending them uh, vigorously. I mean, a- anything that comes up, the, they will defend. Uh, and, and our prime minister, again, you know, I, I'm not entirely convinced that, uh, that any media in America really cares too much about how Canada <laughs> governs itself. But, but the prime minister, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, is apparent, seems to have become quite the, uh, the focal point of some of this coverage. How, how common is that and what's the tone of that? Well, that is, you know, it's interesting. Whenever there is, uh, whenever there's like a negative story on Trudeau, uh, they will jump all over it. So, but I will say like with the convoy right now specifically, um, you know, there's this conspiracy theory that 
that Trudeau is trying to avoid meeting with the truckers. And so he's faking his COVID diagnosis and, uh, or exposure, you know, and that, that's why he's hiding from him. And he doesn't, you know, he's a coward, stuff like that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm just trying to think back to, to their coverage over the years of Trudeau. And it's always uh, the whole blackface thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really, <laughs> the conservative media here in, in America really enjoyed talking about that. They still bring it up. Um, so those types of things, things that they can use to their advantage like that. Um, and I would say, you know, the, the hatred of Trudeau on their part, it comes from, they, they view them as, as very liberal. Um, and they, they view these uh, vaccine mandates, the, the lockdowns, the fact that uh, hockey arenas are still empty. I mean, they view all of that as very authoritarian. Uh, they say that it's anti-science, that, that it's actually hurting the efforts to stop COVID. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of all over the place. Um, but, it, you know, the focus on Trudeau, whenever there's a negative story about him, they will try to use that for their advantage. I'm speaking with Andrew Lawrence, Deputy Director for Rapid Response with Media Watchdog Media Matters. He's in Washington tonight. Um, what would be the impact, uh, do you think? And I know because you do study the impact of, of, of mm-hmm. this kind of coverage. What would be the impact then of the of the coverage in America? Because it's getting a lot of, it's getting quite a bit of publicity. So one obviously would think that there is a portion of the population that are now quite quite intimately aware with what's happening here, including mm-hmm. the fundraising aspect of it. Well, you know, I... <laughs> I, I would say that the conservative media, when they're reporting on this, they, they very much pick and choose what they're going to talk about. So I wouldn't say that the people are highly informed here by, by that coverage. Um, but it, what it is, they need examples of an uprising against vaccine mandates, against uh, the vaccines in general, any type of program like that. They need examples of that. And, and what they're doing is they're getting their viewers whipped into a frenzy. You know, their, their entire... The conservative media apparatus here in America, it, it, their, their business model is to keep their viewers and their listeners and their readers engaged and enriched. And, and people need to be upset and they need to feel like if I'm not watching Fox News or reading the conservative media outlets, you know, I might like I actually might die. Like they're the only ones that are telling me this stuff. So I need to watch that stuff every single day. And that's just all part of their business. model. But I think that, you know, it's. They are a minority in our country and, and more so in yours, um, but they use this to feel like they are the majority, you know, to, to feel like they have the numbers. And then at that point, it will embolden them. It, you know, here in our country, you'll have uh, more rallies, you know, it, it'll get people fired up to go out and, and to try to do the same type of thing. Um, and then that's good for their viewership. You know, the, the media outlets is good for their viewership. It's, it's good for the clicks on the website. Um and, and so that's, I mean, more than anything, I see that as the motivation. It's, it's more about ratings and money more than anything else. Yeah, as I was mentioning, I, I'm pretty sure they don't really have, you know, don't really care too much about how Canada no. governs itself legitimately. <laughs> uh, Andrew Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Of course, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.